listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2018. Today's episode is titled, Correction. Contrary to popular culture today, Christianity assumes a standard of truth and an obligation for all humans to live congruent with this standard. For Christians, Jesus embodies the standard of truth, and the Bible is the best source of revelation about Jesus. Wise leaders and managers understand that the standard for best practices is defined by the truth of the Bible. To build excellent organizations requires alignment with the truth. It is therefore imperative that all stakeholders are accountable to deportment defined by the truth. When stakeholders deviate from this standard, correction must be administered. Correction is not easy or pleasant, nor is it necessarily successful every time. But building a culture aligned with the truth is an essential mark of wide leadership and management and is the predicate for building excellent organizations. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Correction. Well, this morning we'd like to conclude our study of the book of James. This is uh, James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, and I've titled this, this teaching, Apostasy and the Power of Correction. Among the New Testament epistles, the conclusion of the epistle of James is unique. Instead of the familiar words of warm encouragement and salutation, James issues a stern warning about those who profess to be Christians but don't live according to the truth. This is known as apostasy. Apostasy means abandon or renounce faith in something that one formerly possessed or professed. Apostasy is different from hypocrisy. Hypocrisy means to act or pretend to possess faith in something. Apostasy means to abandon one's post, which literally means, you know, you had an assignment and you have no longer been faithful to that assignment. An apostate may have been a hypocrite or he may be a genuine believer who's no longer acting as a genuine believer. In the case of the hypocrite, there was never any genuineness of their profession. But in the case of the apostate, there was a genuineness of their faith. But now they have, they have deviated from living as a disciple of Christ. This means that only apostates can be restored. The problem is, is that when one wanders from the faith, it is difficult to discern whether the wanderer was a hypocrite or was an apostate. There's a long-standing question in Christianity that is commonly framed by whether a person can fall from grace. There are texts of scripture that seem to intimate the possibility of falling from grace. Note the words of the writer of the epistle of Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about, you know, being restored. Note the words of the Apostle Paul, his comments in 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20. He's writing to his spiritual son, Timothy. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Now this, Timothy is his spiritual child, not his natural child. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Very serious sounding text. The Reformed understanding of these texts 
is not that these situations necessarily imply falling from grace. Rather, they reveal either hypocrites who were never true Christians or the possibility of a genuine believer who wandered from the faith. In other words, an apostate. To the early church, the validation that a person was a true believer was their walk. One's actions validated one's profession. When one's actions did not validate one's profession, one was not viewed as a true Christian. The reformers held to this standard as well. The paradigm of Christianity today, however, has lowered the standard. Apparently, desire to see a growth in the number of professing Christians has led to the acceptance of one's profession of faith without a requirement that one's life reflects alignment with the teachings of Christ. If James could address us today, I think he would admonish us very sternly to return to the standard of his epistle. Faith without works is dead. In other words, faith without works is not true faith. Faith means living a lifestyle consistent with Christ as Lord. This lifestyle was defined by the teachings of Jesus and the early apostles. In this epistle, James used the Greek imperative mood about 60 times to describe the lifestyle of a Christian. There are do's and don'ts associated with being a disciple of Christ. The do's and don'ts are not the basis of our justification before God, but justification is validated by living congruent with a Christian lifestyle. Now in these last two verses, James used the imperative mood one last time, his final imperative. The command was to know the truth and importance of restoring the apostate. There's no guarantee that the apostate will repent, but there's still a responsibility of believers to seek to restore the apostate. James clearly intends for this to be a word of encouragement about a very, very serious matter. So let's just take a look at the text. James 5, verses 19 and 20 in the English Standard Version reads, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, many have said this is a very perplexing text, and it is a very challenging text. But let's dig in and see if we can make some sense of it. So you start out here with, uh, in the Greek language here, a third-class condition. This is if. A third-class condition uh, is used to posit a hypothetical scenario of a professing Christian who wandered from a lifestyle of obedience to Christ. The third-class conditions implies uncertainty, but yet likelihood. There are two Greek words used here to express the condition, and I'm not going to pronounce the words. The first one is the word wander, and the second word is the word that we it's translated bring back or to restore. Both are in what's called the aorist tense in the Greek language, and an aorist tense has no specific time designation. It's just talking about an event. So he's positing this his hypothetical situation here of somebody wandering from the truth and someone else attempting to bring that person back. So the Greek word here for wandering from the truth, it's, I'm going I'm to try to pronounce this, planao. It sounds very similar to the city I live in. I live in Plano. 
and uh, planao sounds similar to that, at least to me. It's uh, used metaphorically here to imply wandering from the truth of Christ that is living a lifestyle, you know, consistent, inconsistent with Christ. The text assumed that wandering from the truth was and is sin. For any believer in Christ, there's always the possibility or risk of straying from a lifestyle that's congruent with the truth. The word planao is in the passive voice, which suggests that the wanderer may not be the immediate cause of the error, but rather could be it could be circumstances like trials and tribulations, which James talked about in chapter one, or it could cause be caused by the world, the culture, or perhaps the devil. So you have all these external things that can be working on us to lead us astray. Or it also could be our own flesh, the vestiges of our old nature before we came to Christ. The Greek word here that's translated to restore uh, is in the active voice, meaning that the one that's trying to bring the correction is actively engaged in trying to bring that correction. It's actually an intensified word for turning around. And it implies bringing forth actions that are congruent with repentance. It's not good enough for somebody to say that I repent. They need to now demonstrate that repentance in what they do. The agent facilitating repentance is not guaranteed success. There's always risk in obeying God. Those of you who have been through the BLS, you know that faith always has risk associated with it. Nevertheless, the attempt to help restore a wandering member of the Christian community must be made even though success is not certain. Is it okay for us to take a risk, a risk for Christ? One example of a professing Christian who might wander from the, uh, wander from the truth would be young believers who are not grounded in Christ. Given that salvation is a process expressed by three tenses, the past tense, which is regeneration, the present tense of sanctification, and the future tense of glorification, entering the process of salvation through regeneration does not automatically produce mature believers. Any more than when a baby is physically born is that baby mature. You see, that's a picture. Just like natural children, when they're born, have to grow up and mature, spiritual children, when they're born, they have to grow up and mature. Regeneration is simply the entrance into the process. Those who are regenerated need to take responsibility to do what James exhorted in James 1.21, which was, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And this is a reference, if we go back to that teaching, it was a reference to the vestiges of the old nature that are still in us. You see, when we come to Christ, we are positionally complete, but we are practically now still living like pagans. And so we enter into a present process of sanctification where that pagan lifestyle has to be purged from us and now replaced with a Christian lifestyle. So that's the picture here. And to do this requires becoming grounded in Christ, which means that we view everything in reality with metaphysical awareness, which is the way I use metaphysical awareness is a reference to seeing how God sees about everything, thinking like God thinks about everything, speaking like God would speak about everything. So it's gaining God's perspective of life. People grounded in Christ are committed to alignment with the will and ways of God. 
Living according to the will and ways of God is the correct way to live as a believer in Christ. And it's not optional. I've had people tell me they thought that living under the Lordship of Christ was an option. They didn't have to do it. I find no support for that in Scripture. Scripture gives us instead the mandate to live obediently as servants of Christ in every area of life. This is what I call becoming grounded. The Apostle Paul referred to this truth when he wrote to his spiritual grandchildren in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. He urged them as follows. He says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Another example of immature believers was the first century Corinthians. The Apostle Paul even referred to these early believers as carnal or fleshly in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 3, which intimates they were largely displaying a lifestyle incongruent with Christ. Two New Testament epistles were written by Paul to help them try to, to become more mature and help them learn to live aligned with Christ. Indeed, all the New Testament epistles sounded the call to maturity in Christ, that is, walking the talk. Walking the talk was the understanding of the church during the first 400 years. In fact, it would be more than that, but at least during those first 400 years. These were the days when the church was persecuted, these early days. From 70 AD to 325 was a period of intense persecution for these early Christians. It was therefore unsafe for them to have open meetings. Unlike today, where anyone can come into any meeting, they would not let people even make a verbal profession of faith in Christ come to meetings. That was not enough for them. What they required is if you made a verbal profession of faith in Christ, you had to then be catechized, which means trained to obey Christ. You had to be grounded in Christ. And when they saw that grounding really working, taking effect and changing your life, then they would baptize you. And once they baptize you, then you would be invited to the local gatherings of the churches, which were not open meetings. They were only gatherings of people who truly had demonstrated that they were grounded in Christ. Now, can you imagine trying to have a culture today where you did not invite people to your church meetings because it was only for the people that really were living the reality of Christ in them, the hope of glory. That would be very different. Well, going on to verse 20, you know, James says, let him who know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the verse that gives so many theologians a lot of heartburn because it just is very challenging to understand the text. And I make no pretense that I have a complete understanding, but I'll share with you what I think I see and what I've uh, gleaned from reading other godly men as they've wrestled with this. Uh, first, we have to recognize this is the final use of the imperative in the book, and this is the final verse in the book. <clears throat> and the imperative is used with the word gnosko, which is the common word for know in the Greek language. So the verb was in the imperative mood, which means that this is a command. The present tense was used to suggest this is an ongoing knowing, and a knowing that will not give up regardless of the results. A way to translate this would be to be continually knowing. And this is not, this is not a request. This is a command. You've got to know this. 
You can't let the circumstances distract you and make you think differently. You have to know this. The present tense has future consequences. For the apostate, this present, present apostasy will lead to death. And those who know Christ know that. For the one who is seeking to correct the apostate, there is great hope that the apostate will repent of his sin and return to a life of faithful obedience to Christ, leading to future glorification with Christ. The agent of correction to the apostate must never waver in knowing that when successful, the future state of salvation of the apostate, that is the deviant person, will be validated. In other words, our works don't save us. Our works reveal whether or not we're saved. And so that's the validation. When we obey Christ, that power to do, to do that has come from God. It's not from us. And so it's a sign that we have been regenerated. We've been born again, that the Spirit of God is in us. So that's how we have to remember works. Works are not the tools of salvation. Works validate whether or not you are saved. Correction is not easy or pleasant. However, notwithstanding the difficulties and no guarantee of success, correction is still the right choice. Because if correction is successful, the reward is immense. The validation of the reality of, of salvation for the one who repents. That is worth a lot. You can't put a price tag on that. It's worth all the effort, all the hardship, all the disappointment, all the struggle that you may have to go through to try to help that person to repent. The warning against, the warning against wandering from the truth is not unique to James. Don't think, even though this is a fairly unusual ending to a book, the warning is not unique. There are a number of texts of scripture where you see this kind of warning. For example, the Apostle John also issued a similar warning, pointing out that one who wandered from the lifestyle of a Christian was not a genuine Christian. So here are his words from 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become plain that they all were not of us. You see, this, this phenomena of them leaving was a natural reality that reflected what was going on in their heart. You see, feminology, the natural phenomena of life, which we can see and understand fairly quickly, reveals what's really going on in the ontological nature of life, which is our being side, which is really hard for us to see. So James is telling us, you know, the fact that they left reveals they weren't of us, that their heart was not really here, reveals, reveals the spiritual reality that was going on in them. So that's, these, these are serious warnings about the importance of being faithful and staying true to your convictions and being submitted and humble and teachable at all times. As we consider the responsibility to walk the talk, we must always keep in mind that salvation begins with regeneration, which is the sovereign work of God. We cannot regenerate ourselves. In our fallen state, mankind is without hope except in Christ. Legally, we are by nature sinners, and our sin separates us from God. Death is a reference to the ultimate separation from God that is the final state of sinners, those who are not saved by the vicarious atoning work of Christ. 
Now I want to just uh, point out some theology associated with this text uh, and then give you some application of it. First, let's talk about community. The Christian community is a very important part of our experience in life. We are all our brother's keepers. Walking faithfully, grounded in Christ, is challenging. The risk of deviation from the way is high. No one can walk with God well independently. The Apostle Paul stressed the need for interdependence of a Christian community in 1 Corinthians 12, using the imagery of a body and how all the parts of the body are necessary for the body to be whole and complete. <clears throat> in Galatians, Paul admonished the believers to humbly restore brothers who were caught in sin. <clears throat> Note the words here in Galatians 6, verses 1 through 3 from the ESV. Brothers, if any of one of you is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Part of living in community is helping each other stay on track by faithfully living the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now let's talk about faith and works. Probably some of the greatest uh, discussions historically in Christianity have surrounded these topic of how do faith and works connect. Today there are so many who seem to be preoccupied with grace that they do not understand the role of works. The focus on salvation by grace through faith in Christ is so ensconced that the role of works in validating the genuineness of faith is overlooked, leading many to assert that any mention of works in the context of salvation is legalism. Because of the reality that we humans see in a, in a mirror dimly, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Christianity is a phenomenological experience. Now, I know that may sound like a big word, but phenomenological refers to simply empiricism, empirical experience. It's living in the natural. God is a spirit being and creator of all, granted human beings limited capacity to comprehend reality through empiricism. We can see, we can touch, we can taste, we can observe, we can think. These are things that we can do in the natural. This capacity is derived from our nature. That is, we have been made in God's image, and we have certain attributes from him, like rationality, goodness, mercy, love, and the ability to communicate. These are things that have come from God that we have that enable us to experience you know, empiricism or be phenomenological. God is a spirit being. He created a material reality. This means that the spiritual reality is the root and physical reality is the fruit. As physical beings, though, our capacity is first in the phenomenological realm and secondly in the spiritual realm. And the phenomenological realm really is what opens the door for the spiritual realm. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 46, when he says, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Now, we know that on one level that's not true because we know that the spirit being God gave birth to a physical universe. So their spiritual reality was first. But I think he's talking phenomenologically here in 1 Corinthians 15:46, talking about our existence and from our standpoint as human beings, the phenomenological 
is first, and we see the spiritual through it. And so consequently, the only way that a human being can validate the profession of faith in Christ by any other human being is through the person's works. The works don't save them. The works simply reveal whether or not they are saved. Works are phenomenological while faith is spiritual. Faith and works are therefore inseparable. Throughout the epistle, James made the point that phenomenology of all works and words reveal our ontological faith. You see, ontology has to do with our internal being. Well, you can't see somebody's ontology, but you can see their works, their feminology, their phenomenology. I'm not sure, I'm totally sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, but that the point is we can see in the natural, and that gives us clues into the spiritual. Jesus echoed this truth in the Sermon on the Mount. He said the following, Beware of false prophets who come in to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. As the grapes get, uh, you know, gather from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, that's a rhetorical question, they are not. Grapes are gra- gathered from grape bushes, and figs are not, you know, figs are f- come from fig trees, not from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but if the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, which is the ultimate end. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. It's the phenomena that we observe that we can understand best that gives us a clue to the ontology that's driving that phenomena. So that's, uh, that's faith and works. We have to be very clear on that. Otherwise, we, are, we could be guilty of misunderstanding works and getting into legalism or overemphasizing grace and getting into hypergrace. So we have to learn to see how both are correct and how they're to be understood. A final theological point before I do the application is this. Teaching is necessary but not sufficient. Now that's a big one today because what I see in the Christian world, a lot of Christian leaders think that to disciple someone is simply to teach them. No. No, you ha- you, it's more than that. Teaching is necessary but not sufficient. Teaching is not enough. We must become grounded in Christ. You don't get grounded in Christ just by hearing teachers. People who wander from the truth are arguably untrained and ungrounded in Christ. Paul was so adamant about the importance of grounding people in Christ that he described his state of being as a struggle on behalf of his spiritual grandchildren in Colossae, seeking to help them get grounded. Notice words. I'm just going to read part of this. He says, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 from the ESV, I want you to know how much I struggle. And that word struggle is the word agon. And agon, we get the word agony in English from it. How much I struggle I have for you, for those in Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged and be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you need in life is ultimately gets down to wisdom and knowledge of how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, and that comes from Christ. 
and it comes from being grounded in Christ. Reading down a few verses later, he says, Therefore, this is a command, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk with him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. In other words, there is a mandate to get so grounded in Christ, so Christ-centric, that you see everything with great metaphysical awareness as Christ would see it and you would respond as Christ would respond. You would speak as Christ would speak and you would think as Christ would think. That's the standard of Christianity. Now, nobody does that perfectly, but that's still the standard. Laboring to help people become grounded in Christ is the role of the discipler. It is the charge of every believer in Christ to be a disciple and to become a disciple. Just as boys should become fathers and girls become mothers, disciples should become disciplers. Mothers and fathers don't simply teach, they train. Training is about phenomenologically helping people live obediently to Christ. Teaching provides requisite knowledge and understanding. Training applies, applies guidance or tra- teaching to produce the right phenomena, that is the right fruit. Training requires personal guidance and individual accountability to produce the right fruit. All right, so let me give you a few applications before we close here. As I've done with, uh, as we've gone through this book, I've tried to synthesize the commands, the imperatives that we've run into. And sometimes I've taken several and put them together into one. Uh, In this particular case, we have one imperative, and I'm going to give you one command that I think that is coming from it. And that is, this is what we must do. If we are Christians and we're really followers of Christ, we have to seek to bring correction to those who have wandered from the truth. This will bless them. Whether they like it or not, want to do it or not, understand it or not, doesn't matter. We should seek to offer correction to them. And this is one of those things that, I, you know, personally as a church leader, I feel that we don't do well at all. I think we are so into people-pleasing today and so fearful of running somebody off that we tend to not bring correction. And I'm not saying we don't ever do it, but I think we do it far less than we probably should. We should be much more assertive on that. Uh, A second application here are just uh, examples of the way we deviate from the truth. And I've just got a list of them here. I'm not going to spend any time on any of these. Just want to kind of throw these at you to let you begin to think about paradigms of Christianity that are deviations from the truth. And when we follow these paradigms, we are actually wandering from the truth. We're wandering from the path of truly walking with Christ. And obviously, uh, some of these may be very uh, sensitive to some of you. Uh, you know, some of you may have done these things and, or, you know, we've all probably on some level done many of these, but we need to be challenged with truth. Jesus is the truth. It is, he is the standard by which everything is measured. Okay, so here's some examples of how deviations from the truth that are common today. Just observations that I've made. First of all is the gospel has been truncated. It minimizes the creation mandate and therefore the kingdom of God. Uh, I can tell you for me, I didn't really understand the creation mandate till I was probably over 40 years old. And I became a Christian at 11. And I faithfully attended church since 11. And I taught Bible studies and was involved in being trained as a church leader that whole time. And I never really understood the creation mandate until I was over 40. 
I bought into the truncated gospel. I was really on a bad path. By the grace of God, he sent somebody to correct me. And I'm so grateful that Dennis Peacock was the one that corrected me. Another example of a deviation from the truth. The emphasis on preaching as the main process of discipleship. That is one of the great deceptions today. You, you don't really disciple from the pulpit. You might convey some information, maybe some conviction. Discipleship is a walk with someone. Personal accountability. You know, personally knowing them. Being engaged in their lives. It's very individual. The lack of catechism is a predicate for baptism. Today, we baptize anybody that just makes a profession of faith. We do not, no catechism or very little. We might have a little conversation with them. Nothing what, like what they did in the first 400 years of the church, and arguably you know, after that as well, but I know in particular they did that. When they catechized somebody, it would take months and maybe years before they were convinced that Christ was really operative in them. Another deviation today is, is this megachurch movement which to, to get a crowd in a pagan culture, which we are in a very pagan culture, means you have to compromise truth. Because Jesus made it clear that his truth will divide. Because his truth is not really wanted by the world. So the megachurch movement on some level is struggling you know, you know, to get a crowd, and what they have to do is they have to compromise. We have now abandoned the Bible as a standard of normative behavior in our public policy. It's no longer there, and furthermore, and most professing Christians no longer look to the Bible as a standard to define their norms. The assumption that knowledge is neutral, that denies that Christ is a repository of all wisdom and knowledge, this is the common assumption of all education, and why education has been totally disconnected from Christ. You cannot disconnect education from Christ. Christ is the repository of all wisdom and knowledge. The focus on individual experience instead of discipleship to mature believers in Christ. Today, we're all about just experiencing things. We don't want to, you don't want to spend time really helping people grow and mature and, and doing the hard work of facilitating that. The acceptance of one's profession of faith in Christ instead of one's action as the mark of a true believer. We, if somebody says that they're a Christian we, and they show up for church and maybe tithe and, and volunteer to do things, we just assume they're a Christian. You know, we don't really have a very high bar. Our bar almost doesn't exist. Anybody walks in the door of our of our meeting, we probably tend to assume they're probably a Christian. That is so, so wrong. The growing acceptance in the culture among professing Christians of ethical standards inconsistent with Scripture, such as, and these, this gets back to... Uh, to what I was saying earlier about the Bible no longer being normative. And some of these are very startlingly challenging realities. But the Christian world is embracing cohabitation, abortion, gender dysphoria, and homosexuality in spades. It is unbelievable what's happening and how fast it's happening. We have another assumption that music is worship. I think this is one of the great great distortions and great deceptions today. People think they can go and sing and participate in expressive music and they worship God. No, worship starts with the heart. And it's followed up then with works that display submission to the will and ways of God. That's a worshiper. Whether you sing or not is secondary. The wide accepted definition of success in terms of worldly metrics today it basically has infected the Christian community to where now success in the church is no longer about obedience to God. Success in the church is all about 
how many people show up, how big your building is, how many programs you have, how big your offering is, and how many people attend. That's the metrics. We've lost sight of what it is, what real success is. And finally, we have pop popular cultural entertainment icons who grew up Christians in Christian homes, but were not grounded and therefore abandoned the faith for the momentary pleasures of the world. And just two quick examples of this are Whitney Houston and Katy Perry. Now, Whitney's no longer with us, but Katy is. And we need to pray that Katy is returned, that someone will love her enough to go and facilitate her return to the faith. And finally, I want to give you one last illustration of a, a man that went through the business leadership school training and how he discovered that teaching is not enough. You have to be trained. Uh, this was a faithful BLS student. I'm going to just use his initials, uh, just his initial uh, N. He became a BLS facilitator and thought that he was transformed. Then, he perform then there was a performance review. His feedback was sobering and caused him to wonder if he really experienced transformation. He was perplexed. I read the results of his 360-degree performance review. The feedback suggested that N was insensitive to people and reacted to problems in fear. Theologically, he knew that, that his actions did not reflect Christ, but he didn't know why. I reminded him of the difference between teaching and training. Teaching provides a theory, and training integrates the theory into our lives. Training requires personal empirical phenomena, empirical experience, that specifically requires one to use the theory that one has been taught. Interdependent guidance and accountability are key elements of discipleship. This was the model Jesus used, and you see it in texts like Luke 10 and Mark chapter 9, verses 17 through 26. You see, it's not enough to be taught. We have to be trained. It's not enough to profess Christ. We have to live now as people who profess Christ with great metaphysical awareness. Our phenomena in life must reflect our ontology, and it will reflect our ontology. So what does your phenomena reflect? Does it reflect the ontology that Christ is in you that you have been completed in Christ, you're positionally now with Christ, and his blood has covered your sin, and you're accepted with the Father? Does your phenomena of life, that is your works, does it reflect that that is true of you? May it be true, and may God has give us grace to walk that out faithfully every day. In Jesus' name, amen.